All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Ready to go? All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to jump into uh, Judges uh, chapter 14. We're going to continue. If you've been with us, you know that we're working through the book of Judges. We've reached the final judge. Uh, his name is Samson. I think he's probably everybody's uh, favorite judge, perhaps. That's kind of a weird way to put it. Uh, he's certainly the most popular uh, because we know the most about him. Uh, but before we jump into his life, uh, I want to kind of illustrate something for you or draw on an illustration um, because I think that in the book of Judges, especially in chapters 14 and 15, which i am uh, just been given the opportunity to work through this morning, uh, which is trouble for you because they gave me two chapters to work through, not just one, and so I take like 40 minutes a chapter, so you can do the math there. <coughs> Excuse me. But anyway, so I think what happens here in these two chapters, though, is that God really blows up some of the boxes uh, that we like to put him in. And so I brought this box with me. I uh, went home this week, I was working on it, and um, I was working on my message, and I said, hey, does anybody have a box? Well, I have uh, six kids, and one of my kids' names is Benjamin, and Benjamin means son of my right hand, and that has proven true throughout his 10 years. He is always the one that will be at my right hand, and if I ask for anything, he's quick to say, hey, I got something. So as soon as I walk in and I say, hey, I need a box, my other kids like look at me like, what's your problem? You know, but he's the one who like to his room, gets a box, and is back in like 30 seconds. I got a box, right? And so that's why the B is on this box. This is a box that he keeps uh, his favorite basketball, football, baseball cards in, and he was gracious enough to let me borrow it. Um, But what we do with a box is it it contains things. Uh, Depending on the size of it, depends on what you put in it. And you kind of use a box to say, all right, if I put something in there, I know where it is. And I know its contents will remain in that box. They won't come out of there unless it's altered in some way or something happens to it. But I think what we do unintentionally, and I say this as a a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I think sometimes what we do as Christians is we limit God and we put him in a box and think that he can only function in a certain way. He can only function through certain people. And I think, I, I, I say this because I think we do this unintentionally. I don't think we purposely take God and say, God, you're the creator of the universe and I'm going to put you in this box and I'm going to put the lid on it and you can only work this way. But as we, we go through life, family experience, life experience, there's certain things that happen that I think just naturally we kind of start to say, all right, God, you can only work in this way. So maybe uh, it's like this. There's somebody in your family or a friend who gets sick. And you pray and you pray and you even, that person is anointed with oil and, and you pray over them as the scriptures say you should and they don't get healthy in the way that you think they should. God doesn't choose to heal them. He calls them home and suddenly we say, all right, God, you can't work in that way. You, you don't heal like that. You don't supernaturally just take somebody's illness and remove it from them, right? Because you, you just don't seem to do that. So we put God in this box. Maybe it's a relationship that is broken down for you and you're praying, God, restore this relationship. Work in the other person because it's always the other person, right? It's not us. We're not asking God to work in us. We're asking God to work in the other person. I'm being sarcastic there. But we're saying, God, work in that person that our relationship might be restored. And God doesn't move them the way you think he should move them. He doesn't break them down or start to work in them. And they don't come to you and repent the way you think they should repent. And so you're like, all right, God, I'm going to put you in this box. Because clearly you're not moving in the way that I thought 
that you should. Well, Judges 14 and 15, you are going to see God moving. We are going to see God moving in a way that doesn't fit in to our modern day thinking of how God should operate. So I think God is going to challenge us here in this. So before we jump into this, though, before we get into this, I want to just catch you up in case you haven't been with us, in case you haven't listened online, in case you're not even familiar. You might be sitting here and saying, I don't even understand what the book of Judges is about. I don't even know what it is. Well, the book of Judges is God working in his people. If you know anything about the scriptures, you know that God pulled his people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. He pulls his people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them into the promised land, this land that he had promised them through a guy named Joshua who eventually brings them into the promised land. And God says, this land is going to be for you. And there's people that are occupying the land. And the people in that land, they worship false gods. And so the book of Judges is about God using his people, bringing his people to push out the people that live in the land. And the Israelites are to be a beacon of light a city on a hill, if you will. There to be this group of people that says, this is the true God. The God that we serve is the God of all creation. And they're to be a model to the other nations around them. And the tension in the book of Israel is, will God's people stay faithful to him? Will they remain faithful to God? Or will they assimilate and become like those around them? The tension is also, will God remain faithful to his people or will he punish them for following other gods and false religions. So that's where we find ourselves. There, there's this cycle that happens in the book of Judges consistently, and we've worked through this. So Israel will abandon God. They come and they fall in love with the false gods that are in the area or the land around them, the Canaanites and all the, all the other ites that you find in the earlier chapters. And God turns them over to oppression then. He brings about judgment for restoration. He wants his people to be restored. He wants to be in relationship with his people. He's consistently moving in their direction, but he allows them to be turned over to oppression, and then Israel will cry out for relief. God, help us. We've sinned against you. You are our God. Forget these other gods. We serve you. And God will then send a deliverer, or what we call a judge. And at that time, then there's peace in the land. And then the cycle continues. Well, where we find ourselves here as we close in on the end of the book of Judges. Samson, as I said, is the final judge. And where we find ourselves is they're continuing in a cycle that's going down and down and down. They're further down the cycle because now when they are turned over to oppression, they don't even cry out for relief. When the Philistines oppress the Israelites, they don't even cry out for help anymore. They're that far down. They're that far assimilated with the Philistine culture. God sends a deliverer, a judge, before they even reach for one, before they even cry out. And we also find that there's not peace in the land. There's not really peace here. At the end of the the chapter we're looking at, it says that Samson ruled for 20 years. But it leaves out the phrase, and then there was peace. Because they're moving so far down the hole. And maybe you've experienced this cycle in your own life. Maybe there's an addiction or something that you uh, have fallen into. Or maybe you've walked with somebody who has fallen into addiction and they continue further and further down. They will 
go to further lengths to get the things they need to feed into their addiction, even if it destroys their relationships and even themselves, and they keep going further and further down. Well, we find Israel at the very, very bottom, rock bottom, because they're not even, as I said, crying out for help anymore. All right. So let's look at uh, this chapter together, verse 14. And before we do that, I want to say this. This idea here, this idea here, God is moving in the direction of his people before they are even moving in his. This is probably, if I had to give you like a a phrase that kind of encompasses the book of Judges, maybe even the whole scripture, this is a phrase that I think would kind of encapsulate that. God is moving in the direction of his people before they are moving in his. What you find with Samson is God is moving towards his people. Even though they're not crying out for help yet, he's still moving in their direction. And I think this is true for you and I. If you were a follower of Jesus, sometimes we forget the text, Romans chapter five. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were yet sinners. So that means we weren't moving in God's direction. Jesus died for us. And to my own shame, To my own detriment, sometimes I put God in a box and I say, God, you can't move in that person's life. You won't change that person until they begin to move in your direction. So maybe you have a family member, a a co-worker, a, a child, a neighbor, somebody that you love. And they have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ and walk with him and yield themselves to the Holy Spirit in their life. And you think, God, if only they would move in your direction. If only they would cry out and repent. If only they would come to you. And I've been guilty of this thinking. Perhaps you have too. And I would put God into this box and say, they have to move in your direction for you to move in theirs. But that's not the gospel. That's not the text. God is moving in our direction, in our prayer for our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our loved ones who have yet to come to Christ should be, God, open their eyes to the work that you're doing in their life. God, will you reveal yourself to them in a way that they could see? And that's what he's doing in the nation of Israel in the time of Samson. They're not even looking for God, and God is going to move in their direction. So... God is going to work, say this about Samson before we jump into the text here, God is going to work through one of the most flawed men in all of scripture. Samson is an arrogant, prideful, short-tempered, lust-filled man, and God is going to work through one of the most crooked pencils in all of scripture to draw a straight line. So let's look at Judges Chapter 14, if you want to, please turn there with me. I'd love to have you uh, turn with me to page uh, 216 there in the hardback Bibles in the pews. While you do that, I'm going to grab my water. So I forgot. Sorry. Judges 14. So here we go. Judges chapter 14. And we're going to work through the first like five verses here, and then I'm going to highlight some things for you. So one day when Samson was in Timnah, One of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Isn't that interesting how different dating was back then? Young guys, could you imagine that? Hey, mom, dad, I was 
I was hanging out uh, down at the, uh, the deli today. I don't know why that came to my mind, but I was hanging out at the deli. Dates me a little bit, right? And I saw this girl that I really liked. Why don't you go get her for me, and I will marry her, and we will have a great life together. But that's how it worked. So he said, I, I saw her, go get her. Now, let me share this with you real quick. The geography is important, and I understand if you're new to the Bible, and maybe you've been reading the Bible for a long time, you could easily miss this. So it says he was in a place called Timnah. Well, the reason this is important is because Timnah is in Israelite territory. It's squarely in Israelite territory. Samson hasn't walked down to like the Philistine area And what this means is that there's this oppression that the Philistines have the Israelites under is more like an occupation. Don't think Egypt and Israel, where in Egypt, the Israelites or the Hebrews had to make bricks and the slave drivers would smack their backs with whips. This oppression is different because they intermarry, they mingle with one another. What what is likely happening here is the Philistines have all the political power. And they make all the decisions, all the financial power, all the political decisions. The Philistines have all of the power. Think Roman occupation in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. The Romans had all the power and the Hebrews couldn't really make decisions for themselves. Similar to what's happening here with the Philistines because Samson wants to marry one. So I think that that's important. So keep going here. Verse 3. So his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they ask? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this. I want to stop there because there's some things I want to point out. So what's happening here is at first glance you look at this and you could think, well, this is racism. This is two different ethnic cultures. You have the Philistines, you have the Israelites. And his father, Manoah, doesn't want him to marry a Philistine girl because of their different uh, backgrounds, right? And that, at first glance, that's what that looks like. So I want to show this to you in the ESV, a different translation, because I think they use a word that really helps us here uh, in this translation. So verse three, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? This is important. Uncircumcised Philistines. What in the world are they talking about? Well, I think that Tim Keller says this so well that I'll just let him say it. Circumcision was a sign that a family was in a personal covenant relationship with God. Manoah wasn't so much concerned that she was from a different background. What Manoah, Samson's father, was concerned with was, wait, that family's not in a covenant relationship with God. They don't serve the same God that we serve, and that's a problem. So what he's saying is, can't you find a woman who is of the same tribe as you are, who serves the same God? Because if you remember back to Samson's calling, Samson is supposed to come and deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. How are you going to deliver us from the Philistines if you're married to one? That's the question that Manoah is asking. And this idea 
is so important that it runs completely through the text, all through the text, this idea of intermarrying or marrying somebody who doesn't share your faith is so important to God because marriage is sacred to the Lord. When we get married to someone, we are coming together as one flesh. We're combining ourselves in a great mystery that only God fully understands in two people being joined together as one. And so he says, in the very beginning, as he's laying out things for the Israelites to do, he says this in Exodus chapter 34. This is before the time of Samson. You must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. The Philistines are living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. So he's saying, hey, they're going to ask you to come and worship their gods, and you're not strong enough to resist. You're going to go with them. But then even further, then you will accept their daughters who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons, and they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. God's saying, this is so important because, Samson, you're supposed to be set apart for me. Remember, the Israelites are supposed to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light amongst a pagan people group. And if Samson is giving his allegiance, he's following the gods of the Philistines, which would be Dagon. He's following that God. How can he serve the God of Israel? You can't serve two masters. This goes even into the New Testament and applies to today. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, writes about this, and he says this. Talking about being brought together, the word in the old, like King James or NIV, is yoked together, put together, combined, right? Don't team up with those who are unbelievers, How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? This is not saying that we shouldn't be on a team with somebody who's a non-Christian. This is not saying you shouldn't work with people who are non-Christians. It's not saying anything like that. What this is talking about, at the very minimum, is a deep covenant relationship, right? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is so important to God that he says to us, even today, if you are in a position where you are thinking about, I want to get married, maybe you're dating seriously, maybe you're thinking about dating seriously, and you're sitting here and you're in a position where you're unmarried. That's who I'm speaking to right now. Those who are unmarried. You want to find somebody who shares your faith. Not because the other person is wrong or bad. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what God's saying. But God's saying is, you want to worship me, you want to follow me as Christ followers. We say things like, not I that lives, but Christ that lives in me right? Then you're going to join that together with somebody who doesn't even acknowledge my existence or maybe believes in a different God. How will you function like that? Don't put yourself in that position. Now, I fully acknowledge to you and recognize that some of you, as you sit here, you are in that position. 
You're sitting here, you came to faith maybe after your relationship, maybe you ignored this scripture, maybe you didn't even know about this scripture or something like that, and you are in a situation where you're with a partner who doesn't yet believe in Jesus Christ, has yet to commit their life to Christ. And the scripture gives you instruction on this. The scriptures say, stay in that relationship. Stay in it. Continue to pray for that person. Shine my light in that relationship. You should stay right where you are. If they will stay with you, stay in the relationship. Now, there's a lot of complexities there that in a sermon like this, I don't have time to get into. But if you're not yet in that situation, don't put yourself there. So, moving further in uh, Judges 14, verse 3, and you're thinking, good grief, we're only through three verses of two chapters. Stay patient, we'll rush through the rest of it. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of your people you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. This phrase is so important. Because what's happening in the nation of Israel is they now have a leader. They now have a judge who encapsules, who puts on display everything that's happening in the nation of Israel, their leader is now doing. What he says here, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. What is said of the Israelites at the end of the book of Judges, in those days Israel had no king, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. God had called the nation of Israel to be people of their ears, ones who would listen to the Lord their God, not be people that were drawn by things to their eyes, and that's exactly what Samson does. She's beautiful, she's pleasing to me, I want her. I don't care what you said, I don't care what you told me, I'm chasing her. And this is exactly what the nation of Israel has been doing and is doing, and now they're in lead, their leader embodies their wandering hearts. Now, I told you that God was going to blow kind of our box up. Well, I think this is the verse that does it. Verse 4. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over all of Israel. Well, that doesn't fit nice into a Sunday school lesson. His father and mother didn't realize that God was orchestrating this. So wait, God said, don't marry from the Philistines. Don't marry from other people groups. And now God's orchestrating this relationship. There's a problem here. Well, here's what I think is at work, what I think God is doing. God is not telling Samson, you need to go do this. What God is doing is he's working through Samson's own sinfulness, Samson is full of lust, he follows his eyes, does whatever is pleasing to him, and God is using his own sinfulness as an opportunity to create division between the Philistines and the Israelites. There needs to be an opportunity. Something has to happen to wake God's people up. God's people are asleep, like some of you. Sorry, I'm not pointing fingers. It's okay. You might have had a hard night last night. Maybe you just walked in here. You worked all night. I don't know. It's okay. God needs an opportunity to wake the Philistines up because, or the Israelites up because the Israelites have fallen asleep. They no longer are any different 
than the Philistines who occupy the land. They're not even crying out saying, God, help me. They've been so assimilated to the culture that there's not really a difference there. And God said, my people will be a beacon of light. And yet, the light's gone out. So he's creating an opportunity here through a husband and a wife, and he's going to bring division between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's an awkward way to work. It doesn't fit in the box, but God's going to use this. And he does it through Samson time and time and time again. So we'll try to look at that if I, keep, if I get going here, all right? So this is not an excuse. I want to say this real clearly. This is not an excuse to say, okay, so wait, God works through sinful people. So I'm going to then be sinful so that God can work. It's like the argument like, hey, if God's grace appears more great in my sinfulness, then let me be as sinful as possible so that his grace can abound. There are consequences for Samson's sin. He dies a gruesome death and his eyes are gouged out. Don't think that's the route we want to take, right? There's consequences for Samson's sin, I want to be clear on that. This is not saying go and sin even more. But what this message is about is that God is at work even through our sin and he will fulfill his promises. God made a covenant promise to the nation of Israel and God was going to keep it. Even if Israel wasn't going to keep theirs, he was going to keep his promise. I want you to think for a second about Jesus, the, the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. Because I think that I can see some of you are thinking about this. Wait, God works through sinful actions still. He works through, yeah, he does. Think about the events around the crucifixion. So Jesus comes to earth. God's only son comes that we might have freedom from sin. He comes to the, the place of Jerusalem, right? During his time, the Romans are occupying Jerusalem, The Romans have full control, and the Jews think, wait a second, here comes this Messiah, the one who's going to deliver us from the Romans. He's going to destroy the Romans, he's going to kill them, he's going to throw them out, and our utopia will be here. We can worship our God. And then Jesus starts saying things like, hey, love your enemies. And and if, if one of those Roman soldiers tells you to carry his pack one mile, which he was legally allowed to do, Carry it too. And all of a sudden, the Jews are thinking, wait a second. He's not going to deliver us the way that we, we think he should. And so the Jews turn on Jesus and they start to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. He says he's the son of God and he's not setting us free from this Roman occupation. Not in the way they wanted anyway. And so look, Peter's speaking about the crucifixion after it happens. He's speaking to the group, the very group that sent Jesus to the cross, and look what he says. But God knew what would happen, and his pre-arranged plan, don't miss this, God's plan from the beginning was to send Jesus to the cross because he knew the only way that you and I could be set free from our sin was Jesus shed blood on the cross. It had to happen. Jesus cried out to God, if there's any other way, God, let it be. And God the Father said, no, son, there's no other way. It was his pre-arranged plan. And it was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of lawless Gentiles. You, you Jews, nailed him to the cross and you killed him. You killed him. And yet, 
then after that, he says, repent, be baptized, be forgiven of that sin. But God worked through the sinful actions of the Gentiles and the Jews to bring about salvation. God blows the lid off the box. We think that he can only work in certain ways. We think that he can only work through certain types of people. We think, we look at somebody like Joshua, right? If you're not familiar with the scriptures, Joshua was a man of great integrity, did great things for God, led the people across the Jordan into this promised land just before the time of Judges, right? And I can look around a room like this and I can find Joshua's. Why? Why do people name their son Joshua? Because it's a good name, number one. Number two, it was a person who had a lot of integrity, a person that you would want your son to emulate. I don't find any Samsons. If your name's Samson, come find me afterward. I'd love to meet you. I'm not saying your parents made a mistake. But we don't find a lot of people named Samson because we don't want our kids necessarily to emulate the things that he did. So we think that God can only work through guys like Joshua, but God's working through this broken, sinful man. I want to jump ahead with you. All right, there's some things that happen here. Samson's going to go on and he's going to violate his vows. He's going to go down to marry this young girl. And on the trip, God gives him the power to overpower a lion, right? And he takes the honey from the lion. If you remember the Sunday school story, right? Well, that's a violation of the vow that he had made. He's not supposed to go and take honey from a dead carcass because remember, he's a Nazarite. A Nazarite was supposed to avoid dead things, was supposed to avoid wine and grape juice and things like that. They weren't supposed to cut their hair. There was a vow that was given to him. He didn't voluntarily take it. It was handed to him. He was committed to it from his birth, which means I believe that he resented it, but that's just me uh, assuming that. But anyway, so he's going down to the wedding, goes to this carcass. Uh, He throws a great party, which it wouldn't be a far stretch to believe at the party there was alcohol, which again would be a violation of his vow, Uh, And while he's there, uh, he makes this bet with these Philistines. And they say, he says, hey, I bet you can't solve my riddle. And he shares this riddle with them. And the bet is, if you can figure the riddle out, I'll get you 30 Philistine tunics, which were big money, right? For an Israelite to come up with 30 Philistine tunics, that was a big deal. But he said, if you can't figure it out, then you give me 30 tunics, right? So time goes on. They can't figure it out. Eventually, they go to his wife-to-be, and they pressure her. And they say, look, if you don't give us the answer, we'll kill you. We'll kill your dad, right? So she pressures and pressures and pressures and pressures him. And then finally, right before the last day, he gives away the, the answer to the riddle. And so let's look at verse 18. So before sunset, Of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. All right, two quick things here. Two quick lessons for you. Number one, uh, if gambling is always a bad idea, it's really a bad idea when you don't have the money to pay the debt. Gambling is a really, really bad idea when you don't have the money to pay the debt. Number two, Men, don't ever call your girlfriend, fiance, or wife a heifer. I don't know how he got away with that. Even as strong as Samson was, I'm sure she would have killed him for that one. 
<clears throat> so, verse 19. Then the Spirit, and again, God's going to blow the lid off the box. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. All right, so the Spirit of God comes upon Samson. What's he going to do? Fall on his knees. Praise God. Thank you, God. Call an army together and go against the Philistines. No. What he does is he went down to the town of Ashkelon, which is deep in Philistine territory. He goes into the heart of the Philistine territory, kills or murders 30 men, took their belongings and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. So the Spirit of the Lord empowers Samson, and Samson walks down into Philistine city and murders 30 men and brings back the clothing to pay off the debt of the gambling that he should have never done in the first place. Wow. What is God doing? A couple things. I think, number one, I think again, Samson is a volitional creature, which means a human, that he can do what he wants to do. God's not taking him and saying, I'm going to make you do this. He's not a puppet on a string. He's not forcing him to do something. So the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I think Samson had choices of what he could have done, and he chooses to go and act out in his rage. He chooses to do that, and God still is at work. God is bringing distance, separation. You think the Philistines are going to be happy that 30 of their guys were just killed in one of their own cities? This is creating distance between the Philistines and the Israelites, and God is working in this. There's also stuff with judgment of the Philistines that we don't have time to get into, but God is still at work even in this man. So let's keep going here. What you're going to find is, uh, so Samson's furious about what happens. He leaves. His father-in-law gives his daughter to his best man from the wedding. That would make you pretty mad, right? Samson gets pretty upset when he comes back to see his wife, and his father-in-law is like, oh, you can't go see her. She's uh, remarried. Maybe take her younger sister. That doesn't go over well. So Samson in, again, a, a place where the Spirit of the Lord is working on him, ties up 30 foxes, finds 30 foxes, torches, puts torches on their tails, right? They go and burn the fields, which is a, a direct violation of what God had said you should do. He's like, never put your neighbor's field to the, to the flame. Don't burn your neighbor's field. And yet Samson goes and does exactly what he's not supposed to do. And so again, this creates enmity between the Philistines and Samson. So now they're at the point where we're like, hey, we're going to go and we're going to kill Samson. So they get some men together. They go to the Israelites. And this is amazing to me. Look at verse 11 of chapter 15. So 3,000 men of Judah went down to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. And they said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us? Here again, the Israelites are not calling out for deliverance. They're not crying out for help. Basically what they're saying is, Samson, you're causing a mess. You are really messing this up for us. Why? They rule over us. They're the ones who occupy this land. They're not even crying out for help. Samson replies to them, I only did to them what they did to me. He's acting out of vengeance. So they end up turning him over. He says to them, just promise you won't kill me yourselves. They end up turning him over to the Philistines. 
And this is probably the most popular story when we think about Samson. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey when he's handed over to the Philistines, and he kills 1,000 of the Philistines with the jawbone, verse 15 of chapter 15. He's not even supposed to pick up a jawbone of a donkey because it's a dead thing, right? He's not even supposed to touch dead stuff, but he does it anyway. God empowers him. And then look at verse 16, and this is where we'll start to wrap it up. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. When he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone and placed, <clears throat> and the place was named Jawbone Hill. He finished his boasting. God gives Samson the power to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Don't ask me how. Always the question is like, what, did they just wait and go at him one by one? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know exactly how he did it, but he did it. And so he overcomes the Philistines, and then he boasts about his own strength. Look at verse 18. Samson was now very thirsty, cried out to the Lord, you have accomplished this great victory. So wait, okay, Samson's starting to get it. You, God, have created or conquered the Philistines. You've given me this great victory. It's your power. But that's not what he says. He says, you've accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. By whose strength? Wait a second. Whose strength? Samson, you think you conquered a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey? You didn't even have a machine gun. A jawbone of a donkey, you beat a thousand men, and now it's, hey, God, look at me. Look what you've accomplished through my strength. I am amazed at this point the Lord doesn't. I'm starting over because this guy's not getting it. So he's crying out to God, and the only other time we see in the narrative that he cries out to God is at his death when he's standing there in the temple, which Adam will cover next week. He's standing there in the temple and he cries out to God. That's the only other time we see him interact with the Lord. It's amazing how far the Israelites have gone. But look what God does, and this is where we'll close. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? And I'm surprised God says, yeah, you know what? You can die of thirst. But he doesn't. So God caused water to gush out of the hollow in the ground at Lehi. And Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named that place the spring of the one who cried out. So he names it after himself. And it is still in Lehi to this day. Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. In the midst of Samson's mess, in the midst of Samson's pride, in the midst of his boasting, God sends water from the ground. And whenever you see living water come from the ground in the text, God is in the story. God is sending living water from the ground to refresh Samson's soul, even though he is in a place of arrogance and resistance towards God. God still sends the water. My challenge to all of us this morning is can we be a place, can we be a church where people are sitting here wrestling with hard things, they're in tough places, 
They're struggling with stuff. And recognizing God's mercy is still moving in their direction. God's grace is still moving in their direction. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking, on the outside I look like Joshua, but on the inside I look a lot more like Samson. My prayer for you this morning is God would blow the lid off the box for each one of us. And that we would see God's grace. We would see God's mercy even in the midst of our Heartache, our struggle, our pride, our arrogance, our sinfulness, all of those things that is in the human nature, in the human sinful nature, and we find God's grace meeting us even in that place. And God refreshing as he did with Samson, he refreshed Samson's soul, he revived him. May you feel that this morning. May God revive you this morning as we close this time. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. My mind will never fully comprehend the amount of grace and mercy you have for each one of us. God, will you forgive me for the times that I placed you in a box and thought you couldn't work through someone or through some situation because it was just too dark. Samson's story shows us that you will show up and you will work. Father, I pray for those who are in the midst of the struggle this morning. Those who are in deep hurt Maybe they're struggling with pride this morning and you have yet to put their faith in you. Father, will you reveal yourself to them? Will you bring that water from the ground? Will you be that living water as you are, as you've described yourself in the text? God, will you draw us close to you? In Jesus' holy name, amen.